You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. When we treat children with psychiatric disorders, sometimes their condition is predictive of future problems as an adult. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Hardy. Dr. Hardy is a board-certified child, adolescent, and forensic psychiatrist who is the medical director of the Colorado Boys Ranch. Welcome, John. Hi. Let's start off with conduct disorder. You know, all child psychiatrists probably have that condition near and dear to their heart, but it's a very important condition historically, and your audience may be interested to know about how often important things are found by serendipity. The psychologist, Lee Robbins, at the Washington University in St. Louis, and the story is is that Dr. Robbins learned that they were going to throw away charts from the Child Guidance Center that they had collected over 30-odd years, and she begged them not to do that, and she took them into her possession and went through these charts and identified the kinds of problems that brought these young people into the clinic. And then she did a follow-up study where they actually tracked down a large number of these individuals as adults and interviewed them and did diagnostic interviews. And what she found that was critically important was certain behaviors in childhood, which we now call the symptoms or behaviors of conduct disorder, were highly predictive of adult maladjustment, particularly antisocial personality disorder. And these had to occur by age 15, and they were, again, very predictive as to whether or not, not only if people would grow up having continued important behavioral and emotional problems, but also whether they would not. So one of the beautiful things about knowing about conduct disorder is if you do have a youngster as troubled as he or she may be, if they don't meet criteria for conduct disorder by age 15, the probability is virtually nil that they will subsequently ever meet criteria for antisocial personality disorder. That condition, of course, is very important in a social way in that the majority of individuals who are polysubstance dependent in our country is very much and people that meet criteria for ASPD. Also, the vast majority of recidivist criminals also qualify for that disorder as well. And, and they're a small number, maybe 2 to 3% of the general population, but they are very important in terms of their impact on society. And, and recognizing those individuals prior to them developing such severe problems would be a great boon to us in many different ways. ASPD meaning antisocial personality disorder? Exactly. And and I'll give you an example. There's a lot of information out there such as aggressive behavior in second grade is very predictive of severe substance problems 10 years hence. So we can identify at least a subgroup of children that are extremely high risk for the development of drug dependence and related behavioral problems years before they are likely to have exposure to drugs or develop those problems. So that is a tremendous head start. And in theory, one could identify those groups of youngsters for interventions before they advance and at least delay the use of of drugs and other conduct problems. And even delaying that by a year or two actually leads to much better adult adjustment So we have a lot of power in this regard. The problem, of course, is uh, there's some ethical issues with screening the general population and providing selective interventions. These criteria are not 100% predictive. And maybe more importantly, there's an issue of will. You've got to have 
the will to make an intervention today that you may only see the benefits of 15 or 20 years from now. And our society in particular seems to run more on four-year cycles because of how politics work. Like me, for example. I'm a parent of a 16-year-old. If we've gone through the first 16 years okay, that looks pretty good for the future, huh? It does indeed. And, and a lot of young males, high school seniors, participate in some degree in what we call antisocial behaviors. Uh, and that is common enough where it's nearly normative. It could be fatal, but it could still, still could be normal behavior and doesn't have much predictive benefit. And so sometimes, however, you see we have laws and we have sentencing issues with juveniles, and they're not always that well-informed about that. Sometimes people don't appreciate the nuances. And again, that's a good example of behaviors that occur at one age may be much more predictive of problems than at another. Now, besides conduct disorder and antisocial personality, that spectrum, what other disorders do you see in children that are predictive of problems in adulthood? Well, there's pretty strong continuity, uh, both for the anxiety and the mood disorders from childhood into adulthood. One of the questions that were raised was, uh, is a childhood onset depression the same disorder as adult depression. And we have family studies and genetic studies that strongly support that it is. What we can generally say about mental illness in children, uh, we probably can apply to other childhood onset conditions, and that is that more precocious onset frequently is associated with more severe outcome. An example, if you develop juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, you can have very severe morbidity with that as compared to relatively benign outcomes if someone develops in an adulthood. So uh, these are things we need to be cognizant of. Not every condition that begins in childhood necessarily, though, persists. And this idea of desistance and resilience is also a very important topic and often things we don't understand. An example, why would a youngster who had anxiety problems, born in at a disadvantaged situation, maybe separated from family, turn out to do so well a lot of famous orphans in, in the history who have become great leaders. And we know a few things. There are protective things like having at least one good supportive adult relationship. Uh, sometimes marrying well is a tremendous boon for a given individual, particularly a troubled male. If they marry well, they often do much better than if they don't. And on the converse, troubled teenage girls who marry poorly have a terrible outcome compared to if they have a supportive spouse. But there are some conditions like anxiety disorders in childhood that, although there may predict uh, anxiety problems in adulthood, generally these youth have very good outcomes when you do follow-ups with them, and the mood disorders to a large degree as well. The real take-home message, I think, for me when I see a youngster that has a significant mood or anxiety problem is that they've declared themselves early, and that's important information because should they have a recurrent episode it would be much easier to identify it and to institute treatment quickly. And to some degree, they have an advantage over individuals that you might see in your adult practice, Leslie, that may have had two or three episodes of mood problems, suffered a lot, had a lot of morbidity, but never figured that out until they finally crossed the threshold of a psychiatrist's office. And they often look back and say, oh, my goodness, you know, this, this condition I've had has had a significant negative impact in my life, if only I had known. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Colorado psychiatrist Dr. John Hardy. We are discussing the continuity of disorders between childhood 
and adulthood. Dr. Hardy, do you treat these children with, say, depression any differently than we treat our adults that have depression? The research has shown that the basic lessons we've learned about treating adult depression do apply very well to childhood depression. There is a continuity. You know, we are beholden to several researchers that have taken the effort to study the use of antidepressants uh, in children in example and shown that youngsters who have been diagnosed can, number one, be just as depressed and on average a little bit more depressed than the typical adult uh, patient in depression studies. And furthermore, with the appropriate type of medications, an example, can respond just as well. A few things that aren't always appreciated, generally children, if they do require medical treatment, do best with serotonin medications and are a little less likely to respond to other types of antidepressants. Secondly, they may need a longer period of treatment to show response. And so Graham Emsley did the critically important fluoxetine studies in children, and he replicated it. And some of the take-home messages I took from his studies is a 10-year-old with major depression can be very severely depressed and may need doses comparable to a typical adult dose, perhaps up to 40 milligrams a day, and about a third of the youngsters in his studies who responded, responded after six weeks of treatment. So even though youngsters can be small, that doesn't mean they can have very significant disorders, and they might need a lot of persistence and patience in terms of treatment. That said, youngsters have to be appreciated developmentally, as you'd mentioned earlier, and a child may not come in and use the same words to say he or she is depressed, but they certainly can describe the same types of symptoms if you know how to ask them. And furthermore, they can respond just as well if properly diagnosed and followed. The kinds of things that help, of course, are cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to be very helpful in both children and adults, both for anxiety disorders and depression. Obviously, family-based treatment and support and individual psychotherapy uh, is clearly very helpful to many troubled children who suffer from anxiety, depression, or adjustment problems as well. Let's talk about school phobia. Certainly that can be a challenge not only for parents, but for primary care practitioners when confronted with this sort of problem. Any tips on how we should think about that? Yeah, I think so. I think it's good to think of it as an anxiety disorder, but also this is a good example of where you have to look at the dyad or the relationship between the child and parent, because sometimes what you learn is the child is not so phobic of going to school. They may be more scared of leaving their parent. So you have to understand perhaps they're concerned. I'll give you an example, a grandparent dies, and subsequent to that, the third grader no longer wants to go to school, starts having stomach aches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what really turns out to be true is not that Mike doesn't enjoy school. He's very good at school, but Mike doesn't want to leave mom because he's scared to death something might happen to her while he's off at school. So the real issue is a separation anxiety, and that needs to be properly addressed. In general, it's important to get youngsters back in the classroom quickly if you can do it and not traumatize them because like any other phobic or avoidant behavior, it can quickly get reinforced and become more difficult And obviously, the longer that youngsters spend away from school, the farther behind they become and the more entrenched they may be in terms of adjustment. For me, I really have to sit back and look and see how much of this is related to the child having a problem in the school and how much of this is there being a dyadic issue at home. And sometimes the child may not be that thrilled about skipping school, but you may have a mentally ill or physically ill parent 
that is having trouble with enmeshment, and we often have to help that parent make some adjustments as well. Now, those children with school phobia, do they tend to have certain problems in adulthood as well? Well, they tend to declare themselves when it's a true school phobia and not related for the the separation anxieties that I've described. You're often dealing with a youngster with a history of anxiety and separation problems that are not specific just to school but to other activities. And so children can vary very much in terms of their temperament and that can be an enduring quality. So I would say yes, the anxious child frequently becomes the anxious adult. The question is whether that becomes clinically relevant or causes any impairment. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. John Hardy. We have been discussing the continuity of disorders between childhood and adulthood. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.